You have a pretty close relationship with Will Phil Ranlin. I think anybody that follows you on Instagram oh, is yeah. like, you know, like knows. Uh, how did how did your relationship with him start? If you could talk me through that. Well, you know, Phil was the easiest one to find because, as Phil reminds me, there were very few people with the name Ranlin, and there was only one, so far as he could tell, in the entirety of the United States named Phil Ranlin. Uh-huh. Certainly, only Philip Arthur Ranlin. So it wasn't really that hard to get in touch with Phil, you know, to get his phone number. Uh-huh. And, you know, back in those days, in the 90s, you know, like it was very obvious that if you wanted a rare record put out independently, that the first place to start was the label and the artist. Because generally speaking, in the 90s, those cats still had copies of their records. And so I hit up Phil because I wanted to get a copy of Vibes from the Tribe. You know, the going rate was about 150 bucks, 175 bucks, but no one had one for sale. So I hit up Phil and I said, I want to buy a copy of Vibes from the Tribe. He said, well, I don't have any more of those, but I can sell you a copy of my Time Is Now album. And I bought that, you know, I think he sold that to me for 40 or 50 bucks because less people wanted that one. Think about Mm -hmm. that, you know, like... Time Is Now is probably a better record. It's not his masterpiece because it didn't contain all those grooves that have like, you know, made people so intrigued by his music, but he was willing to sell me a copy of that sealed. I bought it. It came to my, you know, college um, postal stop. <laughs> I listened to it. I was like, oh man, this guy has one hell of a sound here. I got to do an interview with him. And I did a long interview with him back in those days. This must've been around 98 on my college radio station and broadcast that, did this whole thing on Phil Ranlin and Tribe Records. And and we just remained cool after that. And um, he would send me little things here and there, like if he found them, like slicks from his albums or like little flyers or whatever, because he knew that I was into like the ephemera surrounding the music. And when I moved to Los Angeles, you know, I realized that he was entrenched deeply in the fabric of the I guess you would call it the jazz underground, although he was a part of every aspect of jazz here, you know. It, but at that point, it was like the stuff that, you know, Horace Tapscott had done and um, you know, all the work that he was doing himself and, you know, all of the cool people that were around him um, and that he was a part of, you know, he would just uh, he would just pop up. You would see Phil on a gig here, on a gig there. And uh, we did this really great uh, record with Madlib called Sound Directions on Stone's Throw. It was like one of his yesterday's new quintet jazz albums. And at the live show, Phil played in that. And, you know, that was a really lovely moment. I remember reconnecting with him. I hadn't seen him in a few years, and I saw him there. And it wasn't until... Uh, I forget exactly what happened, but it wasn't until I, I, I decided that the tribe stuff really needed its story told in a deeper way that I hit up Phil and I said, hey man, like, you know, I have these Rap Cats events and, you know, I know that you kept copies of your tribe magazines and, you know, I know you have photos because you've told me about them. Like, what if we did an event at Rap Cats and we like showcased a bit of your history and talked about, you know, your music. Do you have any records we could sell? Anything. And he was like, oh, well, I still have my record collection. And so we started scheming on selling his record collection at Rap Cats and like sort of telling the tribe story that way. And it was over the course of putting together that pop up and scanning all of his stuff and like looking at the records and the acetates and the test presses 
that I realized that like, you know, wow, like I've had a long-standing relationship with this guy. I run a reissue label. We're friends. He knows Madlib. He's worked on an album with Madlib that never came out, but whatever, they worked on it. Um, you know, we all know each other and work together. Like, why haven't I attempted to do something with this label and like really tell its story? And I, I, I broached the subject with Phil and he said, you know, that's not going to be easy. But, you know, if you mm -hmm. call Wendell, Wendell Harrison, his co-founder of Tribe and his, you know, musical, you know, collaborator of many decades. He's like, if you call Wendell and Wendell's into the idea, then basically between Wendell and him and myself, we could probably broach the subject with everybody else that was mm -hmm. a part of the collective and try to like definitively tell the story. Welcome back to VMP Anthology, the story of Tribe Records. As you just heard from Ethan Egon Alipad, not only did Phil Ranelin co-found Tribe Records, without his relationship with Egon, we are not making this season of the podcast, and you are not looking at the beautiful box set sitting on your record shelf right now. As you'll hear here, Phil is maybe the most kind, soft-spoken person to ever make wild and ranging soul jazz. <laughs> You know, I, I've talked with Phil, um, and I think a thing that struck me with him especially was, like, really trying to square this kind of, like, wilder jazz music that he makes with, like, this very, like, he's, like, the most soft-spoken, kind person I think I've ever interviewed. Yeah. And, like, yeah. trying to square his music with that was just, like, a mind trip for me. Yeah, you know? man. No, you, you, you hit that on the head. You know, you got to... <laughs> You know, you got to remember that, you know, Phil is a very attuned, spiritual individual, you know, mm -hmm. and he's always had like this demeanor about him, at least as long as I've known him, that was like, you know, very stable and pensive, you know, thoughtful. Mm -hmm. And Wendell Harrison, who's a very sincere guy, you know, as well, and is also very thoughtful, is almost like, you know, Phil's polar opposite you know he's mm -hmm. wiry and like you know energetic and he talks a lot and you know his voice you know inflects in a way that you know le leads you to believe that even though he's like close to 80 or is 80 years old that he's still living the life that he lived when he was 25 30 you mm -hmm. know what i mean yeah and so you get the feeling like you know it wasn't only because people like phil and wendell could collaborate together with other people that have, you know, very distinct personalities that are sometimes between the two, sometimes closer to um, one or rather than the other, could make this music because they all played on each other's records. They were mm -hmm. all part of the sessions. You know, that sound that we love so much came from like this true dynamic that existed between these people. And although they kind of laugh when we put this new historical context on Tribe as like, this well thought out, well planned out collective that, you know, exercised this vision, right? They mm -hmm. laugh at that because they know that it was very pragmatic and ad hoc. But when we look at the people that were playing on the records and how they went back and forth and created the sound that you talk about, it's pretty intense, man. And, and it could only be attributed to the way that they all interacted. In this episode, episode two, Vibes from the Tribe, devoted entirely to Phil Ranelin, the soft-spoken jazz adventurist. 
Marcus talks briefly with Phil about the two albums that he is the leader of in your box set, The Time Is Now and Vibes From The Tribe. The two albums feel like different sides of the Phil Ranolin coin, with The Time Is Now being less groove-oriented and more post-bop and free jazz, and Vibes From The Tribe being a beloved record amongst crate diggers for its thick grooves and its legendary breakbeats. First, Marcus talks with Phil about The Time Is Now and how it was inspired by political upheaval and how the album came to be. I really, again, I like I like everything that you all have put out, um, but I also, especially like the time is now, uh, your album, the time is now, hmm. and so if you could, I was wondering if you could walk me through the creation of that. Like what uh what was the what was the mission statement of uh, that album? Well, you know, it's kind of uh, it has a fitting title for. For the times and and uh, what you know we were all going through at the time, so it was a lot of uh, we just you know survived the Nixon administration and and all the things that were you know you know black people in America especially have uh, always it's funny um, with all the contributions that we've made to the world that we're at the bottom of the totem post, we should be the heroes instead. But that's funny how, how the people turn things around, you know. Um, but the time is, you know, time is now for things to change, man, because, you know, like, uh, it wasn't right, and the things that were going on still going on, you know, things are lopsided. So, yeah, I was just, from an artist standpoint perspective i was just trying to express what my feelings were that's you know it's a personal feeling but uh, a lot of people can identify with it you know yeah just uh yeah, yeah. Uh, we mm-hmm. all deserve we deserve uh you know uh to not be under the microscope all the time and and uh, assume guilty and let's prove an innocent. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and and the thing the thing is, like, even though that record came out so long ago, the messages still hold up today because you know, even this past summer, you have the killing of George Floyd and you have the killing of Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Aubrey, and uh, it seemed like what you all were, what you made all those years ago under the Nixon administration. Well, during the Nixon administration, there's so many parallels with the Trump administration. So is that, mm. you know, is that anything yeah. that you've given thought or? Oh, absolutely, sure. But Nixon was, he was, he was, he was, uh, he was a fairy tale compared to Trump. I mean, what he's, you know, his, what he's done. So, yeah, it's, uh. As they say, sometimes some things never change. It's 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 uh it's getting more critical though now, you know, with with uh, some of the obvious um, everything that that this administration did was to, to destroy uh, poor and black people and the and the world itself, the, you know, the ecology and. This total evil, you know, that's, you know, that's my opinion, you know. 
In this segment, we hear Phil talk about vibes from the tribe and how peculiar it was for him when it started taking off with collectors. Then we round out this episode with Phil's thoughts on why he thinks tribe is taking off with listeners now and how he never set out to make music for anyone but himself. Vibes from the tribe. Um, if, you know, we can walk through that one. Uh, what what was the uh, quote unquote vibe <laughs> that you were going for for that record? Uh, there again, you know, you know, the people influence the music, uh, you know. So observing the people and observing what you know what what we go through on a daily basis that influences what uh, a composer. Of this music, uh, you know, at least for me, it it did. You know, the people influence people influence what I write. You know, I, you know the way I see them walking, the way they look. Oh, I mean, oh, everything combined. You know, like uh, that influences what what I'm gonna write. You know, even subconsciously. So, so yeah, that was uh, so the vibes from the tribe were. It just what it indicate what it's saying, you know, I, I was vibing off the tribe being members of the community, you know, I was like just uh, check, check sounds from the village. I wrote something called Sounds from the Village. And um yeah, the vibes from the tribe. Uh, <clears throat> everything that I that I had written we did on that session, I'll put it like this. I hadn't decided how this intro was going to start, and, and some of that was spontaneous. Where I told Marcus to do something, I told uh, George Davison to do something on the drums a little bit before we, the, the beat actually started. You know, um, but yeah, it was uh, we we actually recorded that at at, at Strata. You know, Strata had a, a little. Uh, a truck you know, with a studio in it, you know, that they, they used to be able to go on location and record. So anyway, that's where Vice from the Tribe was recorded. Wow, that record, really? That record, man, I'm telling you the truth. Uh, uh, when it took off in terms of collectors, and I guess in the mid-'90s is when that happened, it got crazy, you know, because I didn't have but a few copies, and um, and then toward the end, I have, right now, I don't have any, you know, but, but um, yeah, <laughs> I can't, well, this was some years later, this was probably around 2012 or 14, I saw one online for $1,950, and I'm saying, yeah. man, wait a minute, this is crazy, and I don't and I remember when we used to give them away, you know. You know, and, and I'm 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 curious. I mean, obviously, you know, you had said something further back in the call where, uh, you know, you said that now you're doing more interviews that you've done than you've done even in years past. Yeah. And I'm wondering, you know, listening to you talk and then listening to Mr. Harrison as well, like, mm -hmm. uh, 
is there a reason why, like, the music didn't? I mean, obviously you all had fans because you said the person recognized you and saw you play. But why it didn't take off the way that maybe it's taken off now? Like, is there any thought into that? It wasn't the right time, evidently, for us, you know, because everything always happens and when it's supposed to happen. So um, we 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 were content uh, just. I was say we. I was content just to you know play music and survive with it. I you know I never envisioned or even wanted to be you know like super rich and nothing like that and money didn't mean that that was kind of crazy i changed that a little bit but uh at the time i was just you know trying to do whatever i could just be a musician you know do that and uh survive off playing music so that was the initial intent and um, i think uh that's why maybe um when you, when you love something and you put your your heart and soul into it, then you're rewarded eventually. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, I hear that because um, I actually just came out with a book myself not too long ago, and I was and I was saying that to myself the whole time. Like, it would be great if current people understood what the what the intent was, but I'm also mm-hmm. understanding that maybe you know maybe the audience for it isn't until. 10 years from now or 20 or what have you, right? you know, and uh, that's just a thing. Like if you do anything creatively, that's something that you just have to sort of budget for. It's like maybe this audience just won't get it, you know? Right. That's right. Um, that's funny. I never really init- uh, intently, well, intentionally uh, went out to make music that, audience that I, you know, say, well, the audience is going to, you know, this is going to be a commercial set. But that's so funny because naturally some of my music uh, naturally had uh, aspects of that. And uh, I was so, uh, I almost use the word stupid at the time that I didn't realize when people said, oh, your music is... It's commercial. Uh, I'd be upset, <laughs> you know, and uh, when I should have been happy, you know. But um, so, uh, this music, man, for me, it's it's art. You know, when when you're dealing with art, and that's and that's what it was. Um, I think just uh, we're trying to express, you know, every day occurrences with life and and what what we feel and put our feeling into it and that's that's what it ends up being and and then people decide whether you know if they like it or not so there you have it This ends this episode of VMP Anthology, the story of Tribe Records. This season of the VMP Anthology podcast was co-hosted by Marcus J. Moore and me, Andrew Winnestorfer, who also executive produced. It was produced by Jonah Graber. 
A special thanks to Wendell Harrison and Phil Ranolin for their legacy of music and for listeners like you who bought this box set and listened to this podcast. Make sure you pick up Marcus Moore's new book, The Butterfly Effect, at bookstores now. And as always, remember, listen to more Marcus Belgrave. <laughs>